Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I continue with our discussion of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and we are sad because this is our final episode, part three, of course, of a longer series for the Reading Revolution segment of our podcast. So just make sure that you catch up with parts one and two if you have a chance. Um, And feel free to send us any questions, concerns, or issues that you'd like for us to cover on the next Reading Revolution series. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Twitter page, and that's at LeftPSC. And also to check out the Patreon page, which actually has a lot of free books, including the one that we read for this episode, as well as additional details about the podcast, the project, and much, much more. We keep all of our content free at the Left Pocket Project, but if you'd like to become a dollar donor or a $5 comrade, you would do that there at patreon.com. Anyway, on with the show. So I'm back today with my co-host. So exciting. Co-host oh, Richard. Yay. <laughs> I'm excited. And uh, we're going to be continuing with our third and final installment of our discussion of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, hopefully by now, everyone who's been following us can say properly conscientização. That's the test uh, at the end of this episode. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I, I was Just hope- telling her I was nervous and now she does that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, the real thing is not whether or not you can pronounce it, but whether or not you understand it, which I think all of us and hopefully everyone who's been listening very much can. Um, and hopefully if they get a chance to read the book themselves, uh, they'll learn even more about that and kind of get to really feel it and see it in the in their everyday interactions. So, uh, so yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, oh. Did you want to start us off with some thoughts first? Uh, just thank you so much for having me, and I'm happy, and I feel honored to be a part of the project, and now as a co-host, and I'm looking forward to what we have coming, and uh, I hope everybody else is, and for all that you've done, and for all that that's been done, I just want to mention, I want to thank all the Patreons, or all the patrons out there that have uh, subscribed to the patron, and I actually went through a lot of the other uh, podcast venues and saw a lot of uh, positive reviews and have uh, been looking at the left pocket account and saw a lot of positive reactions to the first two parts and just thank all of you so much it's meant a lot to me and it uh, both being a patron and doing whatever you can to give positive feedback or to share the the podcast with others has uh, been incalculably valuable to me and so i just want to reach out and thank all of you and if uh, you guys, if any of y'all can, you know, reach down in the cushions or ashtrays or wherever <laughs> and and scrape together a dollar to spend one place and then you can you can slide us a dollar or become a comrade uh, on the Patreon. It will go. Uh, it helps us all. It helps uh, not just me and Wendy. Uh, there's others in the project that are coming along. And uh, I'm just really excited for all that we're doing. And. Uh, every dollar that you guys are, are that y'all are able to uh, kick down to us 
really makes a difference and uh, helps us do what we're doing here, both the Reading Revolution and uh, the Left Pocket, in Pocket, Left Pocket Project in general. So I just really want to thank you all and uh, reach out to those that can to uh, support us in the ways that you can, whether that's tweeting or writing positive reviews or wherever else it is. So uh, that's the first thing I wanted to say. Yeah, I think we should also emphasize, and we had a little discussion about this off air, but um, sometimes when you're watching YouTube videos, uh, because of their <laughs> weird algorithm, you might end up being kicked over to like strange alt-right stuff um, or things that are extremely reactionary, unintended, like you don't want it, but it just it unintentionally does that through the algorithm they have. Um, and one of the things that sort of helps algorithms and helps people find videos or content or podcasts or whatever is actually leaving reviews. Um, so if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would highly suggest and request actually that you leave us a nice review. If you enjoy what we're saying and you like the podcast, you want to hear more from us, um, you're learning a lot, please feel free to let people know. And especially if you've left a comment on Twitter, which like, yes, I agree with you, Richard. Sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. I run the I run the left POC Twitter page and I, when I see the notifications, I'm always like, oh my God, people are so nice. They're like nice people left in the world, uh, mm -hmm. which is easy to forget when you use Twitter on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we have some amazing listeners and I learned so much from y'all and like your contributions are amazing as well. And so any way that you can help, whether it's monetary or not, it's irrelevant. I just think that any any little bit really does count. But the money also helps. Um, we, I am, <laughs> I I do. I just like did a massive breakdown, like one of these. I, I was joking with Richard and saying it's sort of like a Rain Man style chart uh, for the the '80s babies in the room who remember Rain Man the movie. <laughs> um, but it's it's like how much am I spending uh, out of pocket? How much are we spending for guests? How much am I spending? You know, there's a lot of money that actually goes into running the podcast. Not a ton. Like you don't need fifty thousand dollars to run a podcast but you do need a considerable amount of money um, to pay for things like web storage to pay assistants to pay people to do transcripts to pay i for example uh for real poc i pay the guests a small just like a small thing to say thank you small amount of money to say thank you and then i also give funding to their charity or organization of, of their choice so like for me, a big part of this project is not just about what we do for the podcast or what I do on the, the social media page, but also to be able to give back to various communities and to also just like show support of the guests that we have on. I mean, this takes time. We, we both know that it takes time mm -hmm. to be on a podcast because we sit here for hours, <laughs> hours every few weeks discussing and reading and preparing and editing and whatever. But also, you know, like the people whose job it is to... to to research this stuff and to write about it. And then we have them on our show. I mean, that ultimately is, is time out of their incredibly busy schedules. Um, and so they deserve to be, to be paid and we pay them what we can. I wish it were more. Um, but you know, we do, we do really try to live what we talk about um, and put what we talk about in action, which is fitting because these mm -hmm. next two <laughs> chapters we're going to talk about today are all about the sort of action side of um, a lot of what we've been talking about in the previous two chapters that was more theory-based. So we'll get into that in just a minute. But yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. And thank you again so much, Richard, for being on the show, for giving me some of your time, a lot of your time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I really, I appreciate you too. And I'm really glad that you have come on to the show. So thank you. 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, I just wanted to add that uh, those uh, taking your time out to thank us in the ways that you guys, that all of you have, uh, it, besides making a difference uh, personally, it does make a difference in the algorithm, like uh, Wendy mentioned, and especially on other platforms, uh, iTunes, uh, the SoundCloud when the the you know you may also like suggestions come up mm -hmm. for other various podcasts but that's those are the types of things that they look for so if you're listening to millennials are killing capitalism and then you come over and listen to the new left pocket project and and you drop a like on both that encourages other people that are or vice versa to go do the same thing uh, through the algorithm and so that is very helpful for everyone involved and for all the projects and i've been involved in several projects over the last uh, several years uh, towards you know left organizing and as far as uh living the praxis and the theory and uh all that uh the left pocket project has been the one that i've been a part of that has done that to the best and to the most degree and i wendy i can't i can't uh, appreciate wendy enough for that like it, it's not easy she does a, a lot behind the scenes that she doesn't talk about or you know ask for credit for or anything she, she just does work and uh it's very appreciated and uh, uh those that can that can help compensate uh i very much appreciate that that wendy gets uh that she can get that and because she's a very selfless person and deserves every bit of it but with that i do want to get into the text <laughs> turning to Freddy now who's uh, who's like way more selfless than um everyone else uh he <laughs> he did a lot um and he has quite a bit is as you know we hear some people say like when someone says something really important like amazing and life life-changing and you say wow that was a word right i'm sure people have heard this right he mm -hmm. talks about the meaning of the word word <laughs> in chapter three he literally starts with that um and so we're gonna give this time is gonna be a little bit different um than the other discussions just because like i I'd mentioned sort of briefly in passing these two chapters really are more in my opinion, at least, they came across as a lot more um, direct and literal in a lot of ways. And it's it's mainly a breakdown of definitions, meanings of things, how to put stuff into action, what he means by love and word and praxis and all these things. He does, he spends a lot of time in this, the third and fourth chapter, defining things and giving hardcore examples. So I think it's very helpful, almost in some ways, we were talking about this before off air, but it felt like sometimes like we should have read the book in reverse <laughs> because sometimes mm -hmm. there are things in chapter three and four that help better illuminate what he's talking about in chapters one and two, but in it, it you know, no matter what order you read it in, um, these chapters are really helpful in cementing what you had talked, what we had talked about in the first two, um, first two chapters of the book. The other thing I wanted to add really quickly is the fact that, um, you know, this is in no way comprehensive, right? I highly suggest that if you do have a chance to go read the book uh, on your own time, definitely do that and work through some of these these questions and issues that he raises throughout. Um, you know, this is just a podcast, so we can't do everything. <laughs> it mm -hmm. would be nice, you know. I would I would love to just teach a whole class on this book and just you know talk about all of, all of its twists and turns and historical intricacies and things like that. Um, but we can only do so much in a podcast. But I hope is very much my hope that what we have discussed thus far has sort of encouraged you to either pick it up yourself or if you're reading along with us and you've already read it, that we hope that our discussion has helped kind of underline some of the 
the really important aspects that we took away and then help you find new ones that you can take away and share with others. Um, so yeah, beginning with chapter three, Richard, do you want to maybe start us off um, for a quick review and then I'll chime in when necessary for chapter three? Yeah, um, I one of the first things that we start with uh, for uh, in chapter three is that, you know, that the dialogue project or process can't be the act of depositing. So we covered in part uh, two about what the depositing banking method is and that it's not about uh, objectifying the masses and thinking that there's a, a message that they need to consume. It's about uh, raising their consciousness and in the process of raising your own consciousness together and that it can't have that, that one person can't save another and one person can't save themselves, but that we have to work together in, in order to both raise our consciousness and liberate ourselves. That That is going to be an overarching theme throughout chapter three and four. Yeah. And one of the things too, that is like really important about this dialogue is obviously if you're, if you just break down the meaning of that word, right. It has literally <laughs> two in it, like die, you know, yeah. and you have to have two people log has to do with word, right. So if you break down the word dialogue, you're literally looking at what becomes a mutual experience, right. Um, it's not one person telling the other person, or it's not one person, just as you were mentioning, you know, refer referring to chapter two, it's not a banking, it's not a depositing of knowledge it's an interactive formation of knowledge and i think one of the things that like really stood out to me for this chapter just as even though it's in the very beginning but it's something i think is a big standout is the fact that you know lots of people attempt or, or pretend to have dialogue right and it's not really dialogue it's just top-down telling <laughs> basically so it's a it's a sort of um faked and what Freire considers an alienated or alienating uh, pablum, you know, it's blah, 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 blah. It's not necessarily something that will be life changing. And it's not anything that bears with it as well or that carries with it a, um, a commitment to change. Right. It's just noise. And I think that we can talk. We're going to get into this a bit later, some ways that this applies to the present. Um, but I think right now, you know, in an election season, we we can think about this all day long. The ways that sometimes language can feel empty, cannot be as fulfilling as it should be. Um, and that's something that he really cautions against through the bulk of chapter three. Um, the other thing really quickly is that he talks a lot about uh, in this chapter two, what activism should look like. Um, and so not just word and not just language and, and interaction, but also what it means to, like, do, what does it mean to put things into action if you don't have any sort of um, theoretical understanding of what you're doing? If you don't have background or thought behind what you're doing, if you're just acting to act, uh, there's, he basically says, you know, this is not, this is, this is not the best way to go. It's not good to be just about words. And it's not good to be just about action. You have to combine the two. You have to, the, both of them have to be foregrounded in thought. Mm -hmm. And they're inextricable or inextricable from each other. And uh, one without the other is empty and essentially counterproductive. And yeah. uh, I think that that's something that we definitely see a lot. Just quickly on the communication side, uh, the similarity that just comes to my mind is, you know, when your boss says they have good communication with the team, when their communication is sending out memos or directives 
and never taking anything the other way through the, this is one way channel. And that's often what we see uh, uh, in organizational spaces, in politics, in the workplace, at home, everywhere in, in a lot of our lives. And I think that uh, one of the other arching themes is uh, that our political imagination and he uses uh, phrasings of uh, like uh, limited or uh, he uses other phrasings that we'll get to a little bit later, but uh, essentially that we have to think beyond the current situation. And that takes a recognition that reality is something that we're making, not a static. Uh, it's always been this way kind of presentation as uh, the, the pressers will often present it. Mm -hmm. I think the boss example you gave is really good too, because not only is there a, like, a power-based structural dynamic there, right? Because someone has the ability to grant you your paycheck or not, right? Like mm -hmm. there's, a, that creates already a stilted sense of dialogue. Um, but as you said, you know, it's, it's not necessarily listening to the other side. It's just dictating, um, in which case there is not a, there's not necessarily someone waiting for the response and waiting to hear back and understand, um, what the other side thinks and what they need most specifically. The other thing too, that is, I think really great about this chapter is that, and I brought this up when we had our first, our earliest discussions, but one of the questions I had was, you know, as I was reading, what does he mean by love? He talks about love a lot in the earlier chapters. Um, and I kept saying to myself, okay, like I understand it in general, what he means, but I wanted to know with more specificity, what does love look like in um, a revolutionary sense, a revolutionary context? And when you go to page 89, 90 he kind of starts to break that down a bit more and he even cites Che Guevara um and his discussion of the significance of love in revolutionary acts but he says that um on page 89 Freire says love is at the same time the foundation of dialogue and dialogue itself um, and that love is an act of courage not of fear love is commitment to others um, no matter where the oppressed are found, the act of love is commitment to their cause, the cause of liberation. And I think, and sorry, he says also a bit before that, that dialogue cannot exist in the absence of a profound love for the world and for people. And this is really important because I think sometimes we get so bogged down with negativity. And I think we see, like, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's so much going on in the world that it's hard to even consider that there's love. Um, and I think that, you know, we do see people, thank God, that are very, very, very committed to what they do. And you can see that they really do care. They really are listening and they really are working toward some sort of change that's not just about replacing the people with power with another group of people who are going to exert the same kind of, if not worse, power over others. Um, and, you know, you, Richard, have often talked about this. Uh, when we started the series, you were talking a lot about it and I think emphasizing it. Um, so if people are listening to this third section, go back and kind of consider what Richard was saying earlier on. He was giving us a little teaser um, mm -hmm. <laughs> about what love means in a revolutionary context that I think um, is really important to the reading of this book. On that note, it really kind of uh, piled several things together for me in my mind. Uh, for a while now, I've had the uh, Fred Hampton quote, uh, why don't you uh, live for the people, work for the people, why don't you die for the people? And I've mentioned in a previous podcast, I don't remember which one, that I uh, the first two I was on board with, but the third one was hard for me to wrap my mind around. Mm -hmm. And I had heard Fred speak on it before and I had uh, started to come across it here. 
And what struck me was and was kind of confusing in this text and really brought it full circle was the how he refers to essentially oppressors as necrophilic lovers of death. Uh -huh. And uh, it's that that concept of that when Fred says, if you're if you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself, if, if you're not uh, for for the freedom, uh, this is just me paraphrasing here, but essentially that uh, without freedom, you're dead already. And so like and I kind of understood that. And I've, I mean, it's, it's a sentiment I've heard several times, but like enough things have happened that it kind of finally registered to me that it's just a little piece at a time that you have to sacrifice some something that you believe in or some some truth or uh you know righteous perspective you know it's like i would never do something that would harm a child and then you find out oh actually children were being used to mine the uh you know materials that are in my cell phone so mm -hmm. i guess i kind of kind of did and so it's like how you uh wrap your mind around that is is kind of the difference and the oppressors are necrophilic in their love for death and that they want to kill any sensation or urge for you to understand that in a critical way and they much rather you understand that in a well that's the cost of capitalism that's the way it's always been uh you know those people are in their situation because of choices they've made or because of the superiority of uh, western culture or any of the many many myths that also Ferry goes on to uh, lay out later on and that kind of theme of uh, this, your, your unfortunate circumstances are your own fault or a result of a world beyond uh, your change or anything you can change is fundamental to the entire uh, concept of the oppressors in holding down the ability of the masses to critically analyze and change the world around them. and. Uh, part of the love and is both recognizing that that's a, a human right, and then the he also goes on to mention faith. And I'll quote Freire here: it "says dialogue further requires an intense faith in humankind, faith in their power to make and remake, to create and recreate, faith in their vocation to be more fully human, which is not the privilege of an elite, but the birthright of all." And that's to say that the world is what we make it, and it's our right. It's all of our right to make it. And a lot of people fear, you know, what if I let Trump supporters influence that that world? And and to a degree, Freire addresses that with the, the need for real dialogue and real critical thinking. But he also recognizes the practical situation in that other if you want, uh, if Freire seems to be more of a nonviolent revolutionary from my perspective in reading through this uh -huh. text, particularly compared to some of our previous texts. And so if you want a nonviolent revolution and you recognize the futility of the democratic system as it exists, then what you need is you need an intense faith in the people that if you give them, if you share with them uh, a way to uh, raise, to critically analyze the world around them, that they can get there. And I know Twitter or being online or even in some, uh, you know, like personal situations can make people feel like, oh, there's no way that you can ever change this person's mind. And part of the thing that Freire addresses throughout the text is that it's not about changing their mind. It's about, uh, it's about in, together raising your ability to critically analyze the world around you. And so and in that, you change the, like a successful interaction would be one in which you were able to 
uh, share in a dialogue that allowed both of you to more clearly identify and recognize and, and act on the world around you. And so uh, in that process, Freire suggests that uh, when the oppressor tries to imitate this behavior to further oppression, uh, they will always uh, fail. That doesn't mean that they won't rise to power, but it, it will always, it can never be a genuine revolution and it will always uh, fail for the reasons of not being a genuine revolution. Right. It's like the information. I mean, one of the things that when you mentioned Trump supporters and things like that, and also your discussion of having faith in the population, one of the things that I kept thinking about as well is, you know, um, it depends on what information you're getting, right? Like all of the mm -hmm. information that we get is tainted in some way at this point, um, especially, and I'm just thinking mainly of, of corporate media, right? Um, whether in it's our own minds or... and our own minds are colonized and full of, of all sorts of like hegemonic ideas that have to be systematically removed to continue. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like a lifelong process of learning these things mm -hmm. and then needing to unlearn them. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that also sort of holds it, it, this is building a bit on what you had mentioned earlier, but it definitely holds back the prospect of dialogue in some cases. Um, and part of that learned behavior um, and learned like false consciousness of sorts. I don't really like that term, but it's sort of like a false sense of knowledge comes from, um, you know, oppressors and people in, who have an immense amount of power. And so sometimes it's hard to get to the point where you can work together to learn together, to have a dialogue because these things sort of exist as barriers. Um, I think at the same time, though, people who have good intentions, and Freire talks about this later on, um, he's, we're around page, let me give you the exact page, page 95. Um, one of the things that he talks about here is the fact that even people with good intentions sometimes don't do things the right way when they're trying to engage in this act of dialogue. Um, and unfortunately, they don't have say, any faith um, in the people with whom, the people they're working among um, and assume as we've talked about, uh, not we, you and me, but in other cases mm -hmm. of, you know, activists and things like that have talked about this idea of serving as saviors to the population. Um, he says on 95, talking about uh, people who are, who are trying to change. He says, the task implies that revolutionary leaders do not go to the people in order to bring them a message of salvation, uh, quote unquote salvation, but in order to come to know through dialogue with them, both their objective situation and their awareness of their situation. Um, and he talks a lot about the, in this section as well about the fact, like don't assume that people who are oppressed don't recognize what's going on. They may not have um, solutions that work yet, but they are in many cases thinking about it. It's not that they're like completely unconscious and don't know. At the same time, he has a bit of a discussion in this chapter where he talks about in some cases, there are people who can who are in a situation where they're being severely oppressed and they look at their situation because of the teachings that they've received from the oppressor and either don't recognize it or they don't recognize themselves as, as a member of the oppressed, right? Um, this also goes back to stuff that he discusses in the first part, but that there has to be a moment of recognition. And that doesn't always come from the outside. It usually comes from within. Um, there's a moment, there's a break where you say, there's something off here. There's something wrong. And you might not use the right 
quote unquote right language or might not have the right way, quote unquote right way to express yourself or to even address the problem. But the the act of recognition and self-recognition is is key to this process of change, not something mm -hmm. that someone can come down from the top and give you. Yeah, and and Prairie says it uh, several different ways, uh, you know, sent, essentially saying, you know, the starting point for organizing the program content of education or political action must be the present existential concrete situation reflecting the aspirations of the people. It also says the revolutionary's role is to liberate and be liberated with the people, not win them over says that essentially winning them over should be that's the language of the oppressor and mm -hmm. that the point isn't to isn't to win them over but it, in raising consciousness together we better understand and can act on the world and that will make a better world like the reason why the we have these fears of people you know manipulating and uh you know doing all these bad things if we allow them to be a part of the discourse uh of the dialogue is to is a direct result of those myths that are uh, born into us, the hegemonic thinking. Uh, there's, you know, obviously probably some sort of uh, neurological component for some folks and, uh, you know, a variety of other things. But the, the primary thing for winning liberation is the recognition of the, the contradictions between the explanations that we have for the world and the reality of the world. And... Uh, we love to do that in science, but for some reason, when it comes to social situations or politics, we 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 uh, it's it's heresy essentially to really bring these into the spotlight and to to actually look at them from an analytical perspective in an attempt at dialogue to reach a better understanding rather than to convince the person that's you're discussing it with that you're right and they're wrong. Those are two different. Those are kind of different things and the the top down aspect of it so when you're working with people that you would identify as allies uh the programmatic and uh you know the top down kind of aspect is ineffective uh prairie goes on to kind of talk about how the concrete situations and the realities that the people face may surprise you or may uh, not be what you expect and if you go in there without uh, consulting with the people first then you'll end up, you can end up working against yourself. And so it's very important in the dialogical uh, framework that you have faith in people to be able to get there, but that it's not a blind faith. I think uh, if I can find the quote here quickly, uh, it says it's how his faith, however, is not naive. The dialogical man is critical and knows that although it is, within, it is within the power of humans to create and transform in a concrete situation of alien or, uh, excuse me, uh, within the power of humans to create and transform. In a concrete situation of alienation, individuals may be impaired in their use of that power. And so that's what Wendy was uh, mentioning, essentially, about that uh, when when the, the faith isn't blind and that you have to recognize that there will be impediments and barriers between having that dialogue and that the important thing is to try and remove those impediments and barriers rather than to hunker down in in camps and to uh you know toss invective at each other but to just clearly or to make it clear also my other point that doesn't mean to coddle white supremacists yeah i was gonna say like we gotta have a caveat there like there yeah. also is a protective element where you because i don't think personally speaking i i'd never have read their for to say like 
but go hang out with white supremacists and be friends with like it's not about that <laughs> no. it's not quite the message he's trying to push you have and, to protect frankly, yourself from I, the oppressor too just quickly if if you're just getting into this like i am my advice uh, as tempered as it would be would be focus on those that you already identify as allies mm-hmm. this is going to like you're going to realize quickly how hard this is with people that you thought agreed with you <laughs> and it's like work work there first before you got bother to try and and bring along those that are you know might have a not or a confederate flag because they're you know like it's it's about heritage you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like don't worry about those folks right now uh in building this movement the people that you need right now are the people that are allegedly support all the things that you do but they're, they're essentially how mlk jr referred to as the white moderate yes there are moments i mean yeah i think that there's there is um there's sometimes where your your perceived allies are are that that alliance or that that allyship is porous right it has mm-hmm. holes <laughs> it has <laughs> moments too where you're like oh, okay but you have more of a solid you have more of a solid in that kind of alliance than you do in an alliance that basically is a whole right like there's not mm-hmm. there's when not you- going to go uh, ahead to say one when you pick one issue like anti-war and then you ignore what that anti-war stance would actually bring in from their side right and also the ways that members of a movement can be threatened by other members of a movement rather directly um you have to also think about protecting yourself um and protecting the people within a group like you don't you know what i mean you don't want to put people in a position where they're not only defending against violence from larger systemic forms of oppression but they're also defending against violence directly in their organization i mean that's kind of complicated um but i do think that just to give people reference points by the way what we were just talking about is um around pages 104 when he's talking about consciousness um and talking about situationality um and also understandings of reality all of that's on around page 105 to 110 so anyone who's reading the the original or the excuse me the version of the book that we included on the patreon just so you know where where we sort of are um and then also furthering what you were saying richard i think that this particular chapter gives a very gives very good examples of how to engage in what we nowadays call you know like horizontal organizing without letting things spiral out of control because sometimes even in cases of horizontal organizing we see people sort of emerging as um quote-unquote leaders or we have sort of a hierarchy a creation of a hierarchy within these groups and i think that his his discussion in this chapter does a very good job about keeping that keeping the need um for these kinds of movements to remain horizontal in mind so he gives an example um of people who are conducting research and the better way to do that. So instead of coming into a community that you've never been engaged with, you don't know anything about and saying, this is how it's going to be everyone. He gives the example of, you know, you need to send people to do research. You need to live in this place for, and he means this, by the way, not necessarily literally, like you need to go live in a place for three years before you start working and doing organizing there, but that you do need to have familiarity with the people that you're working with. Um, you have to have an understanding of the conditions they face. You have to understand the ways that you are a part of reinforcing some of these conditions. Um, he talks about the need as well to have constant dialogue with members of the community, which is something that I think some organizers and political as well, political organizers forget. Um, 
But there has to be engagement, constant engagement, constant listening, constant dialogue, um, and constant research as well. And not research in a way where you see people as objects or where you see mm -hmm. um, people's communities as like points of, of you know, data, but where you understand the ways that these people are impacted by what's happening to them in their communities and their, the ways that they're impacted by these structural issues. It's not just a matter of, you know, like, okay, there are poor people, that's, that's sad and they have to deal with X, Y, Z, but also understanding how they have internalized it, how they ex experience it, and also how they express what solutions will be best for them. Um, that's what I think, that's what I took away at least of what he meant when he talked about research mm. in this yeah. particular chapter. Yeah, and, and this particular chapter, for me, this was what I found the most applicable, both currently and then also it just, uh, it, it seemed to really resonate with me. And mm -hmm. there's uh, some phrases that or some uh, terms that he uses that I, I want to go over a little bit at some point. But what I really stuck out to me was in that organizing section, this, this really spoke to me in that it, it's it takes a mutual trust and understanding of what you're trying to do. And like, I think you mentioned how they can't be object. The people can't be objectified and looked at as numbers and statistics. And I think a lot of that has to do very much with the actual research method. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of what Prairie talks about and describes in this research has later been integrated into a lot of sociological research mm -hmm. uh particularly with like you know uh rarely contacted communities in order to try to identify their culture rather than to give a western identification of uh, a forward culture kind of thing and so a lot of those principles or ideas can be used for you know uh and somebody an organizer who wants to work in a community that they aren't personally familiar with uh because it's important that if you want to work with a community and rather than, you know, come in and deposit information into them that you have to find out what they are, what they are after. And part mm -hmm. of that is, is really lined out uh, in this chapter and without being too uh, uh, systematic uh, as Freire tried to avoid, I just wanted to kind of, uh, relay some of the important parts of that that I got out of it. I mean, the cool part about this chapter is that there's a lot of stuff, I think, in the second half of chapter three, where he really does lay out how you should conduct research, which unfortunately a lot of people don't, they, they should do more of, but they don't. Um, and I think that in, in addition, like I said, in addition to it being uh, very, very instructive for how to conduct research, it's also very instructive on how to um, engage in, in local organizing and also just in how to have normal human relationships. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> going to say I could use more of this online. It's hard for me to maintain that kind of decorum, but like uh, yeah. there's a lot of good stuff on here for, you know, just interacting with other human beings. <laughs> right. Like how to listen properly, how to gather information and learn from others, how to um, reflect, how to properly reflect, how to properly address their concerns. I mean, it's, it is, it, it also, I think, like I said, he he focuses so much on dialogue, but I think once again, as we've seen in the previous chapters, he uses this chapter to then put in to take what he taught us basically and put it into practice and to show how dialogue is sort of um, a metaphor for this much larger process of interacting with others. So it's not just about the word, it's not just about the, the discussions, the, the verbal, but it's also about your actions and your behavior in these spaces. Um, and 
So he says, for example, he's talking about people paying attention, investigating a particular community. And he says, during this decoding stage, I'm on page, uh, what page am I on? I'm on page 111, I think this is. Mm -hmm. But he says, during the decoding stage, the investigators observe certain moments of the life of the area, sometimes directly, sometimes by means of informal conversations with the inhabitants. They register everything in their notebooks, including apparently unimportant items, the way people talk, their style of life, their behavior at church and at work. They record the idiom of the people, their expressions, their vocabulary, and their syntax, not their incorrect incorrect pronunciation but rather the way they construct their thought and like that's so important i mean just because i think sometimes people are dismissed because they're not seen as formally educated or they're not understood as you know oh you haven't held this job you haven't held that job and so whatever you say doesn't matter or perhaps this is another thing that happens as well people will be saying something very important like super important but it may not be expressed in the terminology that's correct right um it may sometimes use terminology that's incorrect, terminology that's that's not um, in, in fashion anymore, or that's sometimes deemed as politically incorrect. But at the heart of what they're trying to say, there is significance that sometimes people dismiss because it's not put in the quote unquote right language. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think that that is, and, and that, just, that just speaks to larger problems of classism, racism, you know, forms of, of structural power that we've been taught to internalize and believe in. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this, this section of the chapter, even though it is very much about, you know, like actual research um, and, and how to, to conduct, a, you know, an academic thematic investigation, it's also important that we can try to apply these things in our everyday interactions with others who may not have, or who also, I'm sorry, I was going to say who may not have the same formal instruction or level of instruction of us, but also people who are quote unquote higher than us and how they engage with us, right? Like if I'm speaking to a tenured professor and he or she is talking to me and I'm trying to express something, but I'm not being taken seriously because I'm not a formal academic yet, or I'm, you know, fill in the blank. I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, whatever. There are certain things that disrupt our ability to understand people that go back to very old biases. And we have to try to break down some of that stuff and really listen. And I think that this part of the book really does a, a good job in, in showing people, teaching people how to do that. Wendy's just reminded me that I'm still working on uh, flushing out my abolished college uh, position, but <laughs> I, this, this is definitely part of it in that, you know, it's like, I feel like the systematic problems within higher education are just as, or is just as pervasive as any other institution that we would advocate the abolition of. And so that mm -hmm. doesn't mean, and the abolition of college doesn't mean no higher education. It means that we need higher education that serves the people. And oh, yeah. right, right now we have an oppressive institution that reinforces oppressive uh, tendencies and behaviors. And like, uh, as Wendy mentioned, you know, it's like if I don't have the right letters after my name and I go up to a person with the right letters after their name, uh, it already colors the the type of dialogue we can have. And everything about all of these systems reinforces the oppressive banking model rather than a dialogical interactive learning model, which is the only way towards liberation. And so I, I see them acting in uh, opposition. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Or where, I mean, I've heard, I've heard, for example, it, like I've seen, I've heard a parallel of this to the democratic party, but I've also heard, you know, that uh, academia is where radicals go to die basically, or where <laughs> radicalism goes to die. And it's as, as someone who's like, I'm working on my PhD and I definitely 
see how we are taught to not, we're basically discouraged from being radical in many, many ways that I, I should feel like we should have a separate episode on altogether. <laughs> um, cause there's a lot to say about that, but yeah, it's definitely true. Um, and I really, I, I appreciate what you said. And I think that there does need to be a full overhaul, if not total breakdown and start from scratch, uh, with regard to the education system in this country, including at its highest levels, because it's got, it's got some issues for sure. Yeah. And to that effect, one of the main things that I think uh, Frere mentions in the kind of programmatic lay, uh, where he programmatically lays out uh, what this research looks like, and uh, it starts around page 110 and goes on through uh, till about 120. But so I'm going to do some summary in here, but uh, summarizing here. But one of the main ones is the first contact. So you're you're an organizer, uh, you know, for prison abolition or for uh you know whatever it may be and a lot of organizers already know this and if with any luck some of them are listening so <laughs> the, uh, forgive me for any mistakes i make in kind of articulate trying to articulate this but this is kind of what i pulled out of the, the description that he that frary gives us is to get an agreement from the community to have an informal meeting to just kind of discuss what you're there for mm-hmm. and, and in this process uh page 108 it just as the educator may not elaborate a program to present to the people, neither may the investigator elaborate itineraries for researching the thematic universe, starting from points which they have predetermined. So what this means is that, you know, you're coming in, it's not, hey, I want to get you to vote for Bernie Sanders, or I want to get you to, you know, to do these things. Like, I want to learn, I want to research about, you know, how prison abolition is impacting your community. And that's just kind of a starting point. And as as he goes on to kind of lay out that in investigating that, we're going to come across other themes and other uh, you know patterns that are going to want to be investigated. And that's the real work is going into a community and and investigating those themes within that community and how they relate to them, so that you can better articulate, better communicate your what you see uh, in the world and that. Uh, you two can have a dialogue with the world as it is being a mediator between you mm-hmm. rather than, you know, referencing some text and saying, no, I know this is true because I read it here. And if you don't know or recognize it, it's because you haven't rec- read it and don't realize it too. And uh, part of the disappointing part for me for chapter three was this sounds like a lot of work, not fun, very frustrating. <laughs> and like all the things is like a guillotine sounds way, way, way <laughs> easier. <laughs> like, And so like, uh, but uh, Ferry kind of mentions is like that we can't take on the tools of the oppressor for, to achieve liberation, mm-hmm. whether that's sloganizing, whether that's uh, dictating or whatever it may be. And uh I think he mentions Lenin positively several times, but I feel like there's some criticism of later uh, uh, realizations of real the Russian Revolution, in that essentially that there may that it's critically important to maintain the communication with the people, and that when uh, revolutionary leaders lose that connection to the people, they lose their revolutionary identity, and and the re- the revolution itself uh, kind of uh, loses its its realness it's authentic authenticity and right. i think i think that's very important so if, if whatever it is whatever revolutionary act one is in, in taking undertaking if the, the idea is to rally support from the masses the only way to do that is to relate to the masses in in the way that 
they relate to the world. That doesn't mean, you know, it's like, oh, I have to coddle a white supremacist. It means you have to understand that why this person who's articulating the, their class uh, struggle in racist terms, uh, why, why they're doing that and get them to, to look into why they're doing that. And that's the goal is like, even if you can't get them to recognize that it's wrong, if they can, the more they critically analyze the structures and the, the thought processes that lead them to these things, the more likely they are to be able to break free of them. As like, and that's for all of us, whatever it is, whether that's, you know, being, uh, whether that's for, I know some self-proclaimed socialists, the Venezuela issue uh, made them kind of question how much they were ready to tow the, the socialist mass line. And I think when you, when you take, when you look at the situation from the perspective of those in the communities, and I'm not talking about white Venezuelans on Twitter, uh, <laughs> but, but the, the marginalized people in, in Venezuela, uh, in, in the, or historically marginalized people in Venezuela, the support for Maduro is clear. Like, and even if not directly for Maduro, for uh, the U.S. to stay out and what uh, uh, Guaido did was unacceptable. And so, like, just to, I don't want to digress. And I, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, the main thing is that you have to engage with people. And if you're not engaged with the people, then you, you should be more comfortable with either the mass line or staying quiet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because there are people that put work and time into an effort into being aware and knowledgeable on these issues. And the, they've done the work that can, should give you the, the comfort to either support the, the same rhetoric or to stay quiet, or at least to do the critical thinking yourself. Like, and, and any sort of critical analysis of any of these situations, be it the banking industry, be it, uh, you know, inter, uh, international intervention, be it, uh, you know, racism in America. If if you do a genuine critical analysis, as Freire kind of presents to us here, uh, it, it's un, it, it's almost certain that you'll arrive at a new conclusion than the one that society has left you with. I think also, like, just looking directly at Freire's words, um, mm -hmm. if you're on page 110 at the very bottom, he's talking again about the investigators and he says, the investigators begin their own visits to the area, never forcing themselves, but acting as sympathetic observers with an attitude of understanding towards what they see. And, and then he says, while it's normal for investigators to come to an area with values that influence their perceptions, this does not mean that they may transform the thematic investigation into a means of imposing these values. And I think, you know, that's one of the issues that I have also had just of just in general of reporting period. I think a lot of people who do research in some areas or who do journalism in some areas, they go into a place or a situation with a specific idea and they don't ever listen they just stick to that idea they try to find proof of that idea and then they leave with the same idea they don't necessarily go into a space listening they don't go into a space trying to understand and come to terms with what these people are experiencing and saying um and i think that that is you know something that we saw a lot of and we see a lot of in reporting on international issues because what a lot of american mainstream reporters will do is they say okay there's this particular problem i'm going to go to a place i'm going to look for that same problem i'm going to find um, people who will speak to me who agree with me on this problem and then I'm going to leave. I'm going to parachute in. I'm going to jump out, right? Um, I'm going to get airlifted out. And I, and I think that that kind of 
I mean, he he warns against that. And this can, this is not just one particular, it's not just about mainstream. I mean, I think there are also um, leftist outlets that do the same thing, unfortunately. Um, and I think we have to have uh, a better sense of, or we have to have, we have to Im- sort of enforce better listening skills on, on ourselves, right? Instead of trying to enforce ideas upon others, we have to be able to listen. Um, and we have to also, I would say one last thing, and then we can keep going. I would have to, I have to say that we also have to remember that populations are diverse. There are a whole lot of different perspectives. Um, and Black people don't agree with everything among each other. Every Black person may have a different opinion about a specific issue. Every Venezuelan may have a different opinion on a different issue. Um, You want to get an understanding of what the majority think, sure, but there are all sorts of degrees of nuance and variation within that. And so we have to be mindful of that whenever we make sweeping assessments. Um, Because if if we make sweeping assessments, um, it often means, and especially those that are sort of uh, predetermined, right? If we decide before we talk to people mm-hmm. what what they think, then that's really, really bad. Um, and not us. It's it's literally against what he's saying to do. It's literally the opposite of dialogue, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important that we keep that in mind. I wanna, if we can, keep going and then go to chapter four because we haven't gotten to chapter four yet. There's so much. Yeah. There's good stuff in chapter three. Um, I just want to say quickly, the rest of chapter three seems, um, not seems, it basically just talks about the investigator's situation and how to conduct research, discussion, community work. Um, he gives a few uh, exa- few more examples of things that happened with investigators. He also does a breakdown of several terms uh, that he uses and has some charts in this chapter, which is also kind of cool to check out if you have a chance and if you have this version. Um, But just, yeah, I didn't know if there was something else that you wanted to go into with this one before we go on to chapter four, but I wanted to make sure that we get chapter four in uh, before we forget it. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. before it becomes a prize, try and turn it into a four-parter. Absolutely. So uh, I just wanted to mention like some of the the words that you got, that people are going to want to focus in on contradictions, pay attention to when Frary talks about contradictions, because that's going to be fundamental towards the decoding the unique living code, which is how he describes the investigative process, essentially, Mm -hmm. that uh, when you look at it as he used the word problem, but I would rather use situation to uh, like to better understand that then these challenges become less uh, burdensome and more uh, kind of like, you know, uh, I don't want to gamify the situation, but more of uh, in like it makes a game challenging versus just uh, going through like you see them more as uh, challenges than impassable burdens, I guess to say are impassable or being impassable. And so uh, I think that that's really important. And then uh, that's also where people uh, can spark their critical consciousness. Uh, A conversation about why a particular hairstyle is unacceptable or, you know, why uh, it's uh, unacceptable for that person to be that man to be wearing pink or whatever can spur a conversation that gets people to analyze the the deeper assumptions and myths that they've accepted uh, that. help them form these uh, ideas and positions that are so counterproductive towards liberation, even their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I just wanted to really pull from chapter three is that uh, he's Frere says that we are humans are because we are in a situation and that like and he mentions the faith to remake the world. And it's sometimes it's hard to imagine just how some kind of easy it is 
for the world to just dramatically change without people even realizing something's completely different. And then just adding that to the, this is how it's always been. Uh, I mentioned the a man in pink. It's that was a marketing campaign that really took off in the forties, fifties, sixties, like prior to 1940, it was not a pink was often seen as a masculine color. Uh-huh. And so like, it was like seen as a lighter red and red was already masculinized. So it was and so like now we have these uh, elaborate, uh, you know, gender reveal ceremonies about the colors that signify a sex. And that's something that we just created in within the lifetime of people that are still alive. And you can even ask some of the people that lived through it, uh, you know, about it. And they have adopted the idea that it's always been that way, even though they were alive before it was that way. And so when we we look at the challenges that we face uh, in organizing and in changing the world and making the world into what uh, we we'd like it to be we can't limit ourselves to you know uh the the naysayers who say oh well you know you can never overcome the the human greed or you can never overcome you know corruption or you can never overcome these obstacles because it's simply not true it's like the world entire paradigms can shift uh in a generation if if the effort is made and like that was a bourgeoisie marketing effort but a real revolutionary effort to change the way that we see the world and our ability to remake it uh, can change can happen in in the time frame that I see is necessary as a result of climate change. But that's that's what I'll leave with chapter three. Um, I just wanted to add quickly too to help with this. Um, the term problem. So in this particular case, it's something. It's like an old school way of saying situation actually, and you'll mm-hmm. see. A lot of essays and stuff that are written, for example, for example, excuse me, um, W.E.B. Du Bois's essay on the Negro problem, right? You'll <laughs> see also things like uh, Marx and others talking about the Jewish problem. So it's not so much that um, it's, I mean, it's it's leftover like scientific experiment language too, mm-hmm. um, and sociolo- sociological study language. So, you know, when you have a problem, it just means a question or an issue that you want to better understand, if not resolve in some cases, or you conduct research to better understand and resolve. Um, so yeah, for those reading it, he doesn't mean, uh, and, and like Du Bois and Marx and others don't mean that these people are problems, <laughs> right? Um, just to clarify that, but I, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it needs a little bit of clarification. Um, but instead that it is just a question. It just means question or issue. Um, and then he talks about how to further understand that question or issue, you know, um, and how to solve the, in this case, the problems that are posed to communities um, on account of their position in the world. So like if they're black, if they're Jewish, if they're poor, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, so transitioning to chapter four, uh, we have in chapter four, um, something that again, we were hinting at a little bit, but we see here a breakdown again of more terms. (laughs) In this case though, it's a breakdown of a good, a very strong term that a lot of people use. And that I sometimes am not sure that we do enough talking about, um, in, in, I guess, activist circles or in organizing um, what this term means. But the idea of praxis, that's what the bulk of this chapter is about. Um, Mm -hmm. And he talks about, this is also where we see a lot more charts and things like that. It gets really, really technical. So just be prepared for that. Um, But he does talk about, again, sort of a breakdown of what dialogue is. He has a breakdown of how to put dialogue into practice, and he talks about what praxis means as well. Um, And he also 
starts to get into a lot of historical references that we can go into briefly at some point. Um, but this chapter also, which again, kind of, I'm like, why didn't you do this in the beginning? But this chapter also is technical to the sense that it has subject headings, which is very helpful, actually. Like, why didn't you have it? excuse me, in the rest of the book. Um, but we're going to go, Richard and I are going to go into a little bit of what he says in each of those subheadings um, for chapter four. So I'll just start off by saying briefly um, that this this definition that he opens with about and sort of under, un, I guess like, basically you see the definition of praxis unfold throughout the chapter which is helpful um because he tells us what it means what it means and then he keeps telling us over and over in different ways again a practice of his that he has throughout the book um so i want to talk about that um and then we can keep going from there so praxis what does it mean what is it why is it important um and he says on the very first part of this chapter that human activity consists of action and reflection it is praxis. It is transformation of the world. And as praxis, it requires theory to illuminate it. Human activity is theory and, again, theory and practice. It is reflection and action. It cannot be reduced to either verbalism or activism. And when he says activism, he means like sort of the guise of activism. It's not like when we talk about activism uh, nowadays. He doesn't mean that like activism is bad. He's saying that activism in the sense where it's just sort of posturing, it's the pretension of an act, but not the actual act. Just like verbalism is empty words and not the actual use of dialogue. It's like thoughtless action would in, uh -huh. and actionless thoughts. Like, yep. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I interpreted it. That's much clearer. <laughs> <laughs> Say that uh, again. I mean, Say no, but say it. I like it. Say it again. Uh, or say, well, it was thoughtless action and actionless thoughts. Uh -huh. We want and to avoid it, that. <laughs> yeah, those those are the two extremes, uh, and so like that's and I think various political uh, movements and uh, factions have, you know, whatever, treaded along that line and and stumbled across both sides. And uh, I think it's a critical point of reflection. I think one of the things that Ferry points out is that, you know, in the whole not prognosticating from on high, uh, that it's important that we're critical of the, the takes that we engage with, that we don't just accept them on whole as an absolute reflection of reality, but as a uh, genuine reflection of that person's experience. And uh, to that effect, in identifying the the foundation of praxis he does a lot of kind of animal theorizing mm -hmm. which which is kind of i feel like out of the realm i think it's it's building off of philosophical work that delineated animals and humans uh, throughout the time and was based on a lot of the thinkers of the time and previous and uh I, we're not going to really touch that <laughs> uh, but i think he does plenty well in chapter one and two without the whole animal structures or the animalization of recognizing why uh, making and understanding the world as a, as a human function, whether it's uniquely human or not, is rather less important than that it is definitively a human uh, action that needs to be uh, a part of being human. And so that anything, any system or action that interferes with that is uh, interfering with our humanity. And that's kind of where he articulates the love of the necrophilic that 
uh, by supporting any of those types of actions or systems, it's uh, a support of the death of, of humans, mm -hmm. uh, of their humanity. I like also that um, mm -hmm. he he seems to be as you and you hinted at this earlier, but he's like down with Lenin, which is kind of <laughs> interesting <laughs> and well timed once again. Um, but I like that he incorporates Leninist thought in this work quite a bit actually, and Marx too. We've already talked about this, but it's just really important, and I think it might encourage some people to go and reread some of this stuff or to read it for the first time and to think about how he applied it so well, um, which I personally appreciate. But I like the, the, the part that he includes um, here to kind of show a Lenin, the Leninist version of what he said earlier about praxis and action, avoiding the prospect of verbalism and, and activism in this very technical sense. But he quotes Lenin saying from his work, what is to be done? Quote, without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Uh, it means that a revolution is achieved with neither verbalism nor activism, but rather practice, praxis, excuse me, again, as he says, with reflection and action. But then he goes on to say, the revolutionary effort to transform these structures radically cannot designate its leaders as its thinkers and mm -hmm. the oppressed as mere doers. And this I really felt because mm -hmm. I'm sick and tired <laughs> of seeing what feels like a kind of, you know, let this particular group do the thought and all the, the, you know, speaking on an issue and then have these other people go and canvas and have these other people go and like put bumper stickers on their cars, but not really engage in the leadership positions and not really have them engage in more, um, you know, decision-making uh, positions. And so it, it, I just think it's so important like to see this written down in written form and say, okay, there are people thinking about these things or were people thinking about these things long before any of us experienced them um, in the present. And so we're not, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, like we can, we can see this yes. information here. He, people have experienced it before. You're not imagining things like this is a continued continuous problem and we have to figure out a way to, to address it and, and change things. Yeah, and the septo and octogenarians should know better because like, <laughs> they they were learning and like I mean, there's people that were in the process of learning when the, these ideas were being spread, and they chose a side, and it wasn't this side. Mm -hmm. And like you said, people forget that you know. I think what you mentioned about revolutions and what you're referring to Freddy, but how when he talks about you know sometimes revolutionary leaders can mess up, sometimes they lose sight of their initial goals, sometimes mm -hmm. they start with goals that are not about liberation you know they may seem about liberate to be about liberation but they're not truly about liberation because they never fully listen to the people that they were meant to serve right um and so yeah i think that this is he goes on actually he talks about this on the next page so i should just yeah. read it um but he says uh quote revolutionary leaders this is on 127 revolutionary mm -hmm. leaders who do not act dialogically in their relations with the people either have retained characteristics of the dominator and are not truly revolutionary or they are totally misguided in their conception of their role and prisoners of their own sectarianism and are equally non-revolutionary which like damn like i think that that's <laughs> It's, but I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm joking, but like it's such it's so important for us to remember that. And when I when I say for us to remember that, I don't mean that like everyone's going to be Che Guevara, right? Like not everyone's going to be out leading a revolution, <laughs> but just again in everything that we do in our lives, remember what our purpose was. Remember why we started to do it. Many of us went into our jobs and things like that with hope to help people, right? Um, and we have to keep sight of like why we're doing something. We cannot lose sight of that. Um, and 
not just to help people, but then to change the systems that oppress us, right? Mm-hmm. Not to have this turn into something that is about fame or that's about, you know, I want to have the most clicks on on Twitter or I want to be, you know, I think we were we were talking about this um, before, but like the, the prospect of grifting, you know, we see so many of these things that seem revolutionary, but often are flawed severely because they don't start from a good place and they don't end in a good place. So uh, can't I just, lose, I- people cannot lose sight of this stuff. I, I really love when like I'm like waiting to quote something once you finish and then that you end with the quote that I was gonna do. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I just it, it just means that we were on the same page and, and like yeah. I really I enjoy literally that. literally and... on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I think it's really important and it's it when by reading this text, like for me, before reading this text, sometimes I you know get confronted with things that like on the surface seem like they don't match up with the worldview uh, projected by the socialist uh, general view or by Marx or any of that type of stuff. It doesn't seem to line up, but I can't quite put my finger on it. I feel like this is a very succinct way to kind of identify some of those issues. Is like if a revolutionary leader is not acting dialogically in their relationships with the people, at least it, even in their immediate circle, then you can be almost sure that they've retained uh, characteristics of the dominator and are likely pursuing uh, the the goal of being the new oppressor rather than liberation for themselves or for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's whether that's their intention or not, when you don't act dialogically, that's the direction you're heading. Like, And so uh, as Prairie mentioned earlier in chapter three about the faith and trust in the people to be able to change and re- like, re- remake the world, when you're doing this when you're failing to act dialogically that demonstrates and and manifests in exactly the ways this very identifies and we've seen that we can look at how that's happened since Frary wrote this in a variety of movements throughout the 70s 80s 90s and into today i would just say oh i'm sorry go ahead i would Uh, just say the only thing that's missing for me is like his i mean he talks about military coups later on but i feel like the only thing missing is like the constant fight against enemies that revolutionary mm-hmm. leaders are also plagued with and how to how to deal with that and still be liberatory, I think is a challenge. So like if you're constantly facing internal strife, if you're face internal, meaning like you're within your administration, if you're facing sanctions, if you're facing war constantly, like if you're looking down the barrel of a gun, is it possible to still be revolutionary in the same way? I mean, this is not a question I need an answer to. I'm just saying it's something to consider as well. Well, it's, it's definitely difficult. something it, it to think about, in, especially yeah. in the context. I mean, uh, like you're familiar, uh, more familiar than myself, for probably many of the listeners, uh, about uh, the situation in which Freire was writing this text and like the, the backlash that he faced and le- the degree. And then also uh, like, you know, Che and his work and his organizing, organizing and the frustrations that he faced in some of the movements when he arrived and so on and so forth, which I think Freire actually mentions in here later as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that it, it, it's it's not easy. And it's uh, like when there's imperial forces acting on it, it has a different tint or, you know, strong fascist forces internally uh, changes the dynamic. And so I think Freire is definitely... I feel like Prairie is more applicable to the situation in the U.S. than perhaps the mini mini manual for guerrillas. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, that, like, yes. and so like, 
and so uh, and i also think that these are somewhat identifiable factions within socialist movements today in that this is not quite into democratic socialism it's still i would still place this in the socialist uh, sphere uh, as in socialism with my limited understanding and knowledge uh but it, and it's still in the revolutionary socialism category but it's not the you know more aggressive violent which uh, i think uh the mini manual makes very good arguments for considering the conditions and so i think this is these are the type of dialogues that are going to be necessary moving forward in a revolution in a, in a u.s revolution to identify what are the effective methods recognizing the world as a mediator rather than uh the myths that we've been convinced about the world mm-hmm. that's a really good point and i think uh, one we should consider because obviously Marighella was still in Brazil during the dictatorship um, and was murdered by dictor- dictatorial forces. Um, not to say that Freire wasn't. Freire was also there. He was arrested. You know, he had to deal with a lot of stuff. Um, but it's interesting when you compare their responses, even though they're writing around the same time, they're dealing with similar um, challenges in the sense that, you know, they're both being hunted down by the military dictatorship, but their response to it is very different. Um, and, you know, it makes me also wonder, you know, what, what part of Freire's upbringing also informed that, you know, he didn't mm-hmm. come from a poor family. They weren't initially poor. He, they became poor over time. Um, but how that changes his response. Also, what does it mean to be, for example, um, because Freire is a white man, which we didn't, we haven't really talked about his race at all. But in Brazil, for sure, he's considered white. Um, he's not considered white as much outside of Brazil, at least in the United States, just because he's Latino. But he is, he is white in Brazil um, and white by uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, but grew up in an area that was, you know, mixed racially and whatnot, worked among a variety of people race-wise. Whereas Marighella was identifiably of color. Again, in Brazil, he's not considered, he wasn't considered um, black, but he wasn't considered white either. He's, you know, a mixed race person. Um, so what, how that also may have changed his, his response uh, in some ways, how that also changed the way he was targeted. Um, his, I mean, he was an outright communist. I mean, there's just certain things that I think uh, definitely make their experiences different, but also makes it worth our thinking about maybe why those, you know, why they have these different responses and how they're both important, um, but can be thought of as useful in different, in different contexts and different ways. And perhaps why, you know, they had the fates that they did at the government hands, mm-hmm. like that, that the, there may be a relationship there and that, uh, like what that means to uh, revolutionaries in the U.S. Mm, like, that's a good point. And so, like that, that to me stuck out. Uh, and I guess uh, with that, he, uh, I don't know if there was some more from before the heading start that you wanted to touch on. Um, no, I just think that the the only other part, really quickly, is when he starts going into what happens under a coup. This is just kind of fun to read. Um, but I think that his breakdown on page one twenty eight about the way dialogue does not function in a coup and why it's important for us to distinguish between a revolution that's authentic and a coup. So he says, for example, one thing that makes them very different is quote, one does not expect dialogue from a coup, only deceit in order to achieve quote unquote legitimacy or force in order to repress. Sooner or later, a true revolution must initiate a courageous dialogue with the people. So we talked, we already sort of mentioned that, but it's just sort of interesting to think about the ways that in in oppression under oppression and under oppressive political states 
dialogue is subbed for violence, repression, silencing, and deceit in the under the guise of legitimacy, right? Because one of the things that you see quite often um, with coups that happened in the 60s and 70s throughout Latin America, as they would say, we're taking over to control, we're taking over to create order, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was always about order. It was always about writing things that had become too chaotic. Um, basically, too many people are trying to demand their rights. This is making things too crazy. We've got to stop this. We need to bring back order. And this is something that you see over and over and over and over and over. And that's sort of the false sense of legitimacy that they have to parade in on. Um, and what's in, what's really interesting and why he's saying this as a Brazilian is that in the case of the military coup in 64 in Brazil, they called it a revolution. So the military generals said that it was a revolution. And so this is why he's being, he's specifically saying a real revolution doesn't rely on this BS to try to get into power. So just to give some, a little bit of historical background, that's, that's what he's talking about here specifically. I think it's important, especially in light of what we were just discussing to bring that to light, that he is making a confrontational statement in that directly towards his material conditions as Mm -hmm. they were and at that moment. Not oh yes, <laughs> like it's, it's it's and and its applicability to that we can see the parallels between now and today uh, is is beyond coincidence, but it reflects a pattern that Freire was identifying and that Marx helped identify and that many other people have seen and helped write on and identify and articulate. And there are a variety of uh, pathways to to act in opposition to those. And I think the next part where the headings are. Uh, Freire kind of gives us a bit of it's sort of uh, like not quite game theory but it's just kind of an idea of what is actually happening you know kind of mm-hmm. themes that really articulate what's transpiring the first one is conquest uh, we're on page 138 where he starts with the subheading so go ahead mm-hmm. and uh, what I really liked about these subheadings and how he uh, mentions it is basically he gives you this is the anti-dialogical pathway and this is the dialogical pathway and they are exclusive like you're either pursuing one or the other and at any given moment and in any given action and if like if they reflect those of the oppressor that is counter that is anti-dialogical and that is uh not going to lead us to liberation and so being able to identify what those are and how they're happening when they're happening and see those themes either at the, at the larger level in international affairs or even uh, at the local or even interpersonal level uh, helps us identify uh, when our either internal oppressors or oppressions are acting or we're buying into the myths that we uh, have been taught or we can see in other people where they, there's a genuine emotion there that's real and valid and uh, a, a sincere reaction to the negativity, the negative consequences of capitalism. but they're uh, reconciling and identifying it in a way that doesn't actually uh, capture what's happening. And so helping people to be able to do that is more important than getting them to see it how you see it. Because uh, I think the, the, the overarching theme is that when we do that, we see things much more similarly than uh, we would other than we do currently. And this part is so great because, I mean, these these subheading parts are so great because what he does is he, it just feels so relevant. Like, I know I've been saying that the whole time, but everything I read in this, I'm like, yeah, this is, here's an example of that. Here's an example of this, you know, Um, on page 139 at the bottom of the section of conquest, he says, 
um, he starts talking about myths and the types of myths that oppressors deposit into mm. us quite literally to preserve the status quo, he says. For example, the myth that the oppressive order is a free society, the myth that all persons are free to work wherever they wish, that if they don't like their boss, they can leave him and look for another job, <laughs> the myth that this order respects human rights and is therefore worthy of esteem. The myth that anyone who is industrious can become an entrepreneur, or worse yet, that the myth the myth that the street vendor is as much an entrepreneur as the owner of a large factory. Like all of these things that we're told repeatedly in the United States. I mean, he's just talking about the Brazilian context, uh, context. but I felt this so much because I thought, you know, we're talking today about humanitarianism through war or freedom through oppression or you know, like everyone can make it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, don't be lazy, this, this, this. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like the, the difference between someone like me and you and Bezos is, is ginormous, exponential, you know, and yet we're brainwashed into thinking that, you know, if you just work hard enough, if you work hard, like Jeff Bezos, you can be just like him one day. Yeah. But if that's I a open a coffee stand, then we're both entrepreneurs. And when, when they're talking about, you know, small business, they're really talking about both of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's just kind of interesting that, you know, this stuff is, it's just, it's interesting, but it's also, I guess on the same side, kind of depressing that we're still having these conversations. <laughs> like we're still here, you know? I feel like for a lot of black people that have studied the history of uh, slavery and so on and so forth, I feel like for me, it, it was a lot of the, the, you know, the house slave mentality of, you know, as long as I can get a comfortable living, then uh, it's not hard for me to, you know, be the one and be like, you know, don't mess this up for, for us. You know, the ones that are inside the house, don't you, don't you feel Negroes go around and start doing wild and out, you know, make master mad and kick us all out. <laughs> that that's, I see that in capitalism and in, in this text and in everywhere is just like, uh, you believe these myths and then people, if you contradict those myths, they, it, it's there's a mutual interest between the oppressor and the and the press the oppressed with too much oppressor left in them to shout down the person that's trying to free them and mm -hmm. and or trying to help 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 see liberation oh and speaking of myths we should have a separate uh reading about the the false dichotomy between house and field slaves on a separate day uh because oh, that's also yeah. a myth <laughs> But yeah, that's fair. Too. For another day, uh, but yeah, there were a lot of a lot of people who were house slaves who led revolutions, and a lot of people um, who were oppressed just in different ways, like very extremely oppressed, but in different ways. Um, I understand your point uh, insofar as it's a general metaphor. character. Yeah, 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 metaphor, yeah. Like, yeah. But there's like a lot of there's there's been a lot of like cool work done recently to talk about what house slaves dealt with and how they responded to it. Um, that's but worth maybe a discussion on another day. Uh, well, yeah, I do, I do think it's very important in general towards a revolutionary movement, understanding how those that are in privileged positions can act uh, on behalf of those in less in, in, in all of that. And that's I think that's also important to Prairie's work and yeah. understanding it better. Is that, like I said, I should forewarn, I should have forewarned that my understanding is still limited and very, you know, colonized. Oh, no, this is not about you, by the way. I'm not trying to like, <laughs> be like, Richard, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, in the sense that like we hear this a lot, right? I think it's a it's a, a kind of phrasing that we're used to hearing about the house slaves versus the mm -hmm. field slaves. Um, and there was a lot of overlap and and people working together and a lot of stuff happening, people using their position in the house, which, by the way, was 
not a cakewalk for a lot of people, especially women and children, uh, just to be frank, um, dealing with rape, sexual assault and physical abuse on a regular, like a very direct regular basis. Um, So, you know, it's, it's a little bit, there's a little bit more nuance to be had in that discussion, but I think that phrasing is, is useful insofar as if we base it on the assumptions that we have about Mm -hmm. what happened during slavery, then yes. Mm -hmm. Um, On that note, (laughs) the next section is divide and rule, which is useful in this case because we're talking about slavery. Um, But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I I just like the, I guess the, the myths that he lays out, he goes on to, to lay out some more that are just so ingrained and hegemonic in Western society today, it's hard to imagine that somebody pointed out that they were myths then and that there's not really a strong counter argument to those, to those myths. A lot of them are just based off of a group of people shouting you down and calling you mad for not agreeing with what everybody else in the room accepts as reality. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's one of the things I found the more that I've dove in, especially particularly with uh, liberals and uh, supposed people that are on the same side is that when you dig into the their perspectives and their positions on these things they're either vacuous and devoid of an actual worldview and based mostly on just remaining close to what they view as the center or are actually you know uh, very capitalistic fascist and right-leaning in their base assumptions uh, about how society works uh police is a good example about you know the fear of they're not being police as if you know, society didn't have police as we know it or incarceration as we know it for a long time. And that like what 400 years of incarceration reform has got us is that we've gone from incarceration primarily being somewhere where you kept somebody until you killed them to being someplace where you work somebody until they die. <laughs> that that That's what 400 years of prison reform has gotten us. And so I think that's why a lot of people take the position of abolition and so on and so forth and that like these oppressive realities are so enormous and so uh, hegemonic that the idea that it doesn't have to be this way is uh, seems an insurmountable uh, task to to bring somebody along to, and that's why enlightening or raising consciousness is much easier than trying to give a statistical analysis about why prisons aren't effective. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. you can do that supplementary, but uh, it's not going to, we've, we actually done research. There's been research done on this so that you can present people with contrary information and rather than change their perspective, it actually uh, hardens their perspective. That's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back really quickly to the text, just wanted to, I mean, this one is again, sort of a given. Most people know what it means to say divide and rule or divide and conquer, divide and conquer as we've heard. Um, but he gives some examples here that I just still think are really applicable both throughout history and obviously to our present. Um, one of the big ones that I, I liked that he spoke about or appreciated that he spoke about is the fact of like the ways that oppressors can weaken, um, oppressed people and make them feel like they're alone. He says they oppress, they weaken the oppressed still further to isolate them, to create and deepen rifts among them. This is done by various means. And he talks about the different ways that the government is involved uh, with making it seem like they're helping people when in actually they are, when actuality they are, they are still harming people. Um, I also think again, like so 
so so useful the way he criticizes community development projects mm-hmm. um, and and the problems that he sees in these uh, the way that they actually can exacerbate alienation on behalf of certain members of that community. Um, I also think one of the things that stood out to me as well is like so relevant is the sort of plucking of leaders within this within the community turning them into leaders putting them in positions of power and then basically forcing them if not encouraging them um to assert control in a way that's oppressive on the community even though they also still are being oppressed so it's just it's this like ladder or or you know this this hierarchy basically of oppression um that i also i also one last thing about this mm. section i also appreciated that he talked about class conflict very, rather um bluntly you know mm. he's like this is something that the the thought the prospect of class conflict is something that oppressors don't want to address um they don't want to they don't want to think about it scares them um and they don't want to they constantly try to sort of um put out the idea that they're not the oppressors like don't go after basically don't turn me to the to the guillotine you know like that's yeah. the point of it um but ultimately it's it's this constant sort of sloughing off of responsibility for the oppression that they enact upon others which is something we see a lot of no one you know no one wants to be no one wants to be poor but you'll see people who are rich who like pretend that they're not doing so great in order to sort of portray themselves as also oppressed or marginalized in some way, when in actuality they are, they are exhibiting extreme cases of or extreme versions of power. And I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a billionaire pig. I'm a person of means. Right. <laughs> 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 oh. Well, uh, the the quotes that stuck it out for me were on are on page one forty three. Uh, Ferry says the oppressors do not favor promoting the community as a whole, but rather selected leaders. The latter, of course, by preserving a state of alienation, which Wendy mentioned, uh, hinders the emergence of consciousness. This is key. Is like every step they take is to hinder the emergence of consciousness mm-hmm. and critical intervention in a total reality. And without this critical intervention, it is always difficult to achieve the unity of the oppressed class. And to Wendy's point about the class conflict, the oppressors hate any discussion about it because it's a lot easier to win a fight when the person you're fighting doesn't know they're in a fight. Mm. (laughs) Accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And it's even easier when they're punching the people that are on their side. Yeah. Like, and so if you can, and we've seen it, uh, and uh, uh, I think we're going to have an opportunity in the near future on the Left Project uh, podcast to talk about it more. But Chicago uh, is kind of a, a case example of this in that you've seen. Uh, a lot of devastation and trauma and terrorism inflicted on communities uh, by the government and uh, that uh, the divisions that they sow uh, are intentional. And there's, Mm -hmm. this is a strategy. The, one of the things I liked about this part of chapter four is it kind of lays it out as here's, here's what they're doing. This is their strategy. These are the tools that they have. Here's how they use them. And this is, this is what you can expect. And uh, in 40 years, they haven't really changed much. The, the thing, the, the methods and the strategies that oppressors use have been somewhat modernized, but they're very predictable. And the, the countermeasures for revolutionaries to employ are also, uh, we don't have, as Wendy mentioned earlier, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are methods and strategies that may need updating or modernization, but that they've been thought through and some of the 
immediate questions, you know, like whenever you go to a website, there's the FAQs about these questions. These are always the questions that people ask. So why don't we just put the answers out there? These, this is the FAQ of, of the revolutionary movement in, of sorts. And this particular part kind of gives you, in my perspective, what I pulled from it was some of the frequently asked questions about, well, how do you uh, fight this or how do you not imitate that oppressive behavior? How do you not uh, follow the footsteps? How do you not organize in a way that empowers the oppressors rather than uh, disempowers? And so the plucking of leaders is a big one. And so like, uh, I think Black Lives Matter realized this right away, uh, at least initially, that they didn't want to identify leadership both for personal safety reasons, but then also uh, from a leadership perspective, when you identify leaders, it's easier to corrupt and contain and, uh, you know, do various other actions that limit their effectiveness. Uh, when when you raise the consciousness of an entire community, you can't just go in and pluck out the Martin Luther King Jr. and publicly assassinate him to scare everybody because, like, everybody is everybody and everybody is one in, in a community that is revolutionary and ready to raise towards liberation. And so you, as... Hampton would say, one of my favorite people to quote, uh, is you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail the revolution. And so uh, when you make figures, you present people that you can capture and, uh, you know, change and and then shift towards the good, to, towards your use. And I'll avoid a modern example to not cause anything else and also to move us along. But uh, that is very critical from what I picked out from 143 is that uh, leadership has to be viewed as in the same kind of dynamic as the teacher-student relationship that he describes in previous chapters about a, a cooperative relationship in which uh, we're both doing something. That doesn't mean that there aren't distinct features among revolutionary leaders that may not be as prominent in revolutionaries, but it does mean that uh, we are one and the same and that our goals and that our methods are intended to follow the same path. One of my other, um, in addition to the leadership part, which I think is really great, the false leaders uh, part mm -hmm. is really great. Uh, later down on 146, where he's still talking about methods of divide and conquer, another one he gives is about the false generosity of the oppressor, mm -hmm. of the oppressor, excuse me, which he talks about earlier on. But he says here on 146, second paragraph, quote, a psychoanalysis of oppressive action might reveal the, quote, false generosity of the oppressor as a dimension of the latter's sense of guilt. With, his false, with this false generosity, he attempts not only to preserve an unjust and necrophilic order, but to quote unquote, buy peace for himself. It happens that peace cannot be bought. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> peace is experienced in solidarity and loving acts, which cannot be incarnated in oppression. And this is like very important because I think we often see people with massive amounts of money and massive amounts of power kind of doing small charity projects as if to make themselves look better among the public and make it look like to sort of confuse the population basically so that when you think of that person, a good one is Bill Gates. You say to yourself, Oh no, but Bill Gates does so much great work in the third world. And Bill Gates does so much, you know, like so many community projects and he donates to this, this, and this, but also you're like, wait a second. But, and you and I talked about this when we talked about climate change um, in the episode that we did in December. But one of the things that we both mentioned was like the fact that these projects often work to hide the damage and destruction they're doing and they don't come close to giving back the community what they've taken away from them, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it's never even and it's always a sort of ruse uh, to make themselves look better 
the last thing um, really quickly that he talks about in this section that is also important for us to keep in mind in the present is the way history is also distorted um, in order to keep these divisions going. Um, and sometimes unconsciously so, like people don't even realize that it's being used in this way, but it might be. So he gives the example of a, um, a movement that was happening during the colonial period in Brazil uh, that's actually about people trying to, you know, like take down a corrupt and incredibly um, oppressive government of, of the, you know, the Portuguese. And uh, they were called conspirators. The inconfidencia or inconfidencia, the conspiracy, and that's a very has neg very negative connotations, right? So it's amazing that when you look back and you think about a very important historical moment, and it has this air of negativity around it, and that's because the naming was done by oppressors, right? The naming is not done by the people who who enacted this plan to overthrow a corrupt government. So you can kind of think about um, a, a more con contemporary and U.S. based example the discussion around riots, right? So mm. we talk about riots all the time as though people are just like destroying their own property and they're burning down CVS and this and that, but in actuality, they're responding to oppression. Um, and it's not a riot. It's, it's ultimately a form of revolution, no matter how big or small. Um, and it's with time where we can look back and say, okay, this is a revolution. So like things like the Haitian revolution were not called a revolution for a very long time. So mm -hmm. it's important that we remember that sometimes history and our remembering of things, and I would say often, not just sometimes, is at the hands of people who are doing the oppressing. It's not in the language of the people who are fighting for change and who are fighting for revolution. Absolutely. And one of the things I just remember, too, is just that when you go through these, the conquest, the uh, divide and rule, and the next we're going to be touching on uh, manipulation, and then it ends with cultural invasion it's basically u.s history more articulate better <laughs> yes. artic it's basically u.s history better articulated than you'll find in any grade school textbook yeah like i mean you could throw all those away and just put this in there and that would be more helpful in my opinion i <laughs> agree it, it, it is it is exactly it's exactly what we did or what was done in the united states uh, and uh that it, it especially i think comes to light in the last section but before that we'll get to manipulation yeah. And by manipulation, um, what he's basically talking about is the ways that people who are um, dominant elites, the oppressors, et cetera, try to make uh, regular degular, as uh, our friends over at Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, regular degular people <laughs> conform to their beliefs and enact uh, the needs and wants of the, the elites and the people in power. Um, it works hand in hand with the idea of myths that we discussed already. Um, but it's this idea that basically what seems like is supposed to be working for you and to help you is actually helping the bourgeoisie, the wealthy, the elite continue to achieve their goals, which then further your own oppression. <laughs> so it's like a sick, a cycle of, of seeming change that actually just helps people who are trying to hurt you and he describes it using the example of the populist uh, politician in that the populist like it seems to me that he's making the distinction that a populist is using manipulation to essentially act as a, a mediator between the bourgeoisie elites and then the the masses and that mm -hmm. but that by the nature of the deception the manipulation and all of those things it by its very function, its the its nature of existence is 
uh, acting in, on behalf of the oppressors, even if they themselves view themselves as an intermediary between the two. And one of the things that kind of touches on both that and what we were just talking about with plucking leaders, uh, and it's kind of random, but I was watching an RT from Un Unreported World, which has its problems, but also has some good uh, reporting on there as well. Uh, but basically it was the back, backstory of a Congolese man who was uh, or uh, somebody in the Congo and kind of the history and basically how he ended up being hired by the UN, getting paid large amounts of money to essentially explain to his people that, you know, why these horrible atrocities, he was uh, there during the, the Rwandan uh, genocide as well and lost his wife. And it's a very sad story. But anyway, the point being is just that he made a lot of money uh, being an intermediary between his people and the UN uh, and, and capitalist forces that were exploiting his people. And at one point he just had to say no more. And it's, it, that's where I think a lot of people are at in their lives uh, that, you know, they're seeing all this exploitation and all this horribleness going on around them and they want to say no more, but they don't know how to say no more, how, how to rebuild their world without the, the comforts that they've become accustomed to as a result of the exploitation that they were either unaware of or uh, put out of mind. And, and it, I, go ahead. I was just going to no, say, I think this, the text helps, but go ahead. Um, really quickly. It also, he, I mean, the best way to summarize this section is to talk about intermediaries or sheepdogging as well, just to put mm -hmm. it in like one word. Um, so later, later on in this part, he says, in a situation of manipulation, the left is almost always tempted by a quote unquote, quick return to power, uh, forgets the necessity of joining with the oppressed to forge an organization and strays into an impossible quote unquote dialogue with the dominant elites. And ultimately he says, you know, you cannot dialogue with the elites because the elites <laughs> and the oppressors are always thinking about their own positionality, their own wants, you know, you cannot dialogue with them ultimately. And while mm -hmm. it seems like this intermediary or person who's in the act of sheepdogging is dialoguing on your behalf with that group, as in the example you just gave, they're not, they can't represent your interests to that group because ultimately that group doesn't give an F about you, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, and, and it, he also, he goes on, I mean, this again hit so close to home with, 2016 and now 2020 he says this process ends up or ends by being manipulated by these elites and not infrequently itself falls into an elitist game which it calls quote-unquote realism so basically this sounds to me like the discussion we hear all the time about pragmatism right like you gotta gotta be mm -hmm. realistic you have to just come along with the herd even though we're taking you to your own slaughterhouse you know like mm -hmm. just come on in and ultimately these, this look, process look at that disruptor things. running the opposite direction away from the slaughterhouse. <laughs> stop that. Stop that one. <laughs> yeah. So like this, this part definitely, I mean, again, like the whole book hits home, but this part I think is particularly applicable to what we see in national elections. Um, and we have a lot of people who serve as bourgeois intermediaries and ultimately they're not our friends <laughs> basically. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I know. And I, I think uh, the cultural invasion uh, would be the next section that really stuck out to me. And uh, I think this hits home for indigenous uh, comrades more than um, most folks in that it describes 
how white supremacy invades and and co-ops a culture. It's not specific to white supremacy, but I think that's how a lot of, uh, at least of our U.S. listeners will interpret it. And then also indigenous will see just Western colonialism in it. But Mm -hmm. essentially one of the quotes that stuck out to me was, in this phenomena, the invaders penetrate the cultural context of another group in disrespect of the latter's uh, potentialities they impose their own view of the world upon those they invade and inhibit the creativity of the invaded by curbing their expression and goes on to say about like prevents them from naming their world. It oppresses mm-hmm. them from naming the world. And I couldn't like the most, it was a very vivid uh, like connection to the treatment of indigenous people in the United States, especially in that like, and throughout Western domination and imperialism throughout many countries, uh, of refusing to allow the population to name their world. So this is taking away their gods, their history, their structures, and reappropriating or reassessing their holidays, their, all these types of things, where they, they impose their way. This is very you know, deposit-oriented, banking-oriented. Civiliz- we're we're going to deposit civilization into these people mm-hmm. and, fix, and fix their shortcomings with no respect for how the value of their naming of the world and uh that's a very stark example but it's very easy like and it's hard to imagine how how could people be so horrific and it's like but you'd be surprised how easy it is to just do in your everyday life and like chances are you've done it in any one of us have done it in the last 12 months like to somebody and we we've had our justifications and our rationalizations but it's very very easy to just to just cast the people off in that way and it's also, I mean, just looking at this, I immediately thought of language quite literally, you know, how if if, if you're seeing language as an, a key element of culture, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you learn another language, it, it gives you so many insights to how the culture functions. Um, and like, just imagine, you know, your your group speaks a specific language, has an understanding of the world based on that language, and then that's taken away from you, that's forced out of existence, literally, in some cases. Um, and what that means. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And also, um, he goes on to talk about some somewhat the ways that we're just trapped again in the same cycle of um, not being able to see our own oppression, because it's been like, it's that's been conditioned out of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So he talks about on page 157, he says, for an alienated person conditioned by a culture of achievement and personal success to recognize his situation as objectively unfavorable seems to hinder his own possibilities of success. And like Mm -hmm. this, this part reminded me so much of what we see at the end of Michelle Alexander's book about this idea of the false Mm -hmm. idea of black exceptionalism and how just because one black person makes it quote-unquote makes it starts to make money becomes president whatever it doesn't necessarily mean that that person's individual success is indicative of what's going to happen with the whole community nor is it even indicative of the reach that that person has in his or her own power like or it's not is it really success if the position that you inhabit is one of the oppressor you know like it looks that way to on the surface but ultimately like you're performing a disservice against yourself against your community, against so many people, it doesn't necessarily mean something positive, you know? And I think that our, like the constant reinforcement of, of values that aren't necessarily our, 
original ones that aren't our own, but that are instead embedded in this like hyper-capitalist individualist or individualistic way of seeing the world. That's so harmful. You know, it's, it continues to be harmful um, to us. And, you know, I think it just, it just goes back to this idea of, you know, the cultural invasion because what we, the values we did have of communalism that go back in very many indigenous societies in the Americas in Asia and Africa that's been erased in large part, you know, um, people are trying to refine it again through different means. Um, mm -hmm. but I think that, you know, it's hard for us sometimes because we're still stuck within a cycle where, uh, the idea of success is based on how much money you make, how big your house is and not like how large your community is or how many people you're close to, or what you can do to contribute to someone to helping someone else. That's not how we base success. Yeah, and many of the measures of success are very anti-dialogical, counter-revolutionary, and oppressive. I mean, yeah. it's like one that comes to my mind is you know like family living situations. It's like uh, in the U.S., uh, it's very you know if, if you're for longest time and it's it's changed over as the economy's gotten worse. But when you leave uh, your parents' home, it's become it, it's a very large signifier of your value to society. And it's very interesting in that, like in various other cultures, I know, and particularly in like Italian cultures, it's not uncommon in a variety of uh, other cultures for uh, people to stay at home until they're married off or then also communal living where uh, even in the U.S., I know there's some immigrant cultures that will have eight to ten people in a, in a home and, until they can pay off that home and then they spread out to a new home and that's how they progress through, uh, uh, you know, uh, spreading it. But it's like, there's also this sociological aspect of, well, if you don't fit these certain pre-ascertained ideas of success, then you're failing, even if what you're doing is actually leading towards liberation as opposed to away from it. So mm -hmm. somebody who's working at Amazon collecting a six-figure check and donates 10000 to some, you know, water sources in Africa is rewarded socially as being uh better toward towards liberation towards freedom towards you know caring about uh the impoverished than somebody who just has to work to get by and takes at least an hour out of their month that they don't really have to spend to do something to work towards liberation it's like that 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 difference in how we value our social contributions and that the economic uh, uh indicator is so highly valued versus the social positive impact and that then, you know, you got your Jeff Bezos or your Bill Gates or even George Bush receives a lot of praise for his help in Africa when essentially what he was doing was imposing uh, Western Christian ideas of abstinence only and putting a bunch of money behind that and not making the problem actually better rather than uh, the issue better rather than doing the type of uh, intervention like condoms that would actually have the effect that was desired to lower the age rate. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the the way that these systems interact with each other and build on each other and prevent e prevent uh, opposition. I, I picked this up early and I've only begun to understand it more, but it's it's kind of awesome in, in the sense of not like good, but in like inspiring awe and a sense of just disbelief uh, at the efficiency of the system to self-perpetuate. So it does you don't even need bad individuals you could take a bunch of good-natured good-intentioned people and just drop them into the system and the system 
can uh, manipulate them and reinforce all of the negative aspects and turn a good community into a destructive community within a generation. No, not even. You yeah. don't even need a generation, sadly. And, and it's, I mean, I mentioned before Chicago, and it's just another example of like some of the most radical, po positive, powerful movements were coming out of Chicago and Oakland. And we see now after the terrorism and the destruction wrought by government, both uh, Republican and Democrat. So this isn't a partisan issue. Uh, Hanrahan was a Democratic. He was a daily. He was being groomed to be Daly's replacement. So this is very bipartisan and decades in the making that the, the destruction and terrorism is intentional to, to alienate and to diffuse and to destroy that energy, those movements, the, the class consciousness, the class, the recognition of class conflict, because it is, it, 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 it threatens them. It is a real threat to the people that uh, benefit from it. And they're going to fight tooth and nail. And as we've seen through the 60s, they'll do whatever it takes. Absolutely. So there are a few more subheadings. Um, when we said we were done, we mean just with one like section of the subheadings. Uh, so yeah, you want to take a, take over from here? Keep going. Yeah, essentially what we have uh, from Ferry in the second set of subheadings is kind of the revolutionary perspective on the, the headings before. So instead of divide and uh, conquer, we have cooperation. Instead of invading, there's cultural synthesis. And we could spend hours going over just this section, and uh -huh. uh, we we don't have the time. Our, the our goal in, in our efforts is to uh, share with you, and especially for me, is to share with you this learning process as I'm attempting to raise uh, my critical consciousness and, and be more able to identify and transform the world around me, and in in that act, become more fully human. Uh, that I'm just trying to share that experience with you so that in, in hopes that we can do that together. And that's really at the core of what Ferry was writing. And it, it's just reassuring and reaffirming that that was kind of what I set out to do more or less and, and realize that uh, I was a role that I could fulfill. And it's like, so I don't mean to, to, to deposit this information into anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my intention at all. It is, uh, but to, to just share with you what I'm doing and give you my side of the dialogue and in the ways that you can and through Twitter and elsewhere for you to share. And then just to open up these uh, lines of dialogue with the people around you, because that's where it's really important is getting offline and interacting with the communities that you are a part of uh, that you don't get to necessarily choose to be a part of the ones that where you, where you live and the places that you frequent and the people that are a part of your life. The that's where the systematic and structural oppressions uh, meet the the personal level, and that's where we can rise together as a community uh, and and achieve liberation. And while I have no intentions of trying to deposit this information into into any of you, I would. I'd like to take this moment to to remind you that we do appreciate if you could deposit and make any deposits <laughs> into our Patreon, becoming a comrade or just donor and 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 helping us uh, do these things and uh, help 
recognize that the work that we're doing does take labor and that the, the labor that's being put into it should be uh, compensated. And if you're pulling things of value out of this, uh, I just humbly request that, that you are able to make those deposits. And if I recognize that not all of us are able to, and so uh, the things that you can do, sharing, liking, uh, commenting, positive reviews, all those types of things are very helpful. And uh, you'll probably, around the same time this comes out, I'll have recently gone through a bunch of comments and liked and followed a lot of you that have said positive things. And uh, that's probably something I'm going to just try and do more of is that if you're saying positive things and your timeline looks like something that is uh, not something that I either already have a lot of or reflects a perspective that uh, makes sense to me in some way or I find uh, enlightening, I will absolutely make sure to follow you back. And for some reason, I know that that's a big thing on Twitter. <laughs> just get those follower numbers up. And so uh, if that can incentivize you to help engage in your critical consciousness, that's the least I could do. And uh, uh, I just want to thank everybody again for this opportunity, Wendy, and uh, everyone that's helped bring this together, uh, Noah and everyone. And just, I'm really just happy to be a part of this. And I just want more people to be have something like this to be a part of. Cool. Um, and much appreciated. And again, the feeling is mutual. Um, I wouldn't have brought you on if I didn't think you could handle it. <laughs> you could do a good job. Um, no, but I, I just want to say to you just quickly uh, to wrap up with Freddy, there's some points at the very end, like literally last page of the book that I think are so important and like have to be mentioned before we go. Um, and I also want to spend some time maybe after I put this recording out to go back through the book again and put out some of our, our quotes that we've discussed from the book. Um, and maybe especially from the sections that we didn't get a chance to go into in greater depth, uh, but that I've definitely got highlighted like crazy. Um, but I do want to talk about those and perhaps I'll use the social media, either Facebook or Twitter or both uh, to do that. But one of the things that I, that he closes with, is this real emphasis on critical consciousness. Um, and if you want to achieve critical consciousness, he says, um, to achieve the critical consciousness of the facts, that it's necessary to be the, quote, owner of one's own labor. And that labor, quote, constitutes part of the human person. And that, quote, a human being can neither be sold nor can he sell himself. Is to, be, to, to go beyond a step, sorry, is to go a step beyond the deception of palliative solutions. So in other words, this isn't easy. This process is not free, <laughs> you know, free in the sense that, you know, everything's just like easy and it's going to happen and, you know, fall out of the sky for you. You have to work towards change. Um, you have to have an understanding of what you're doing. You have to also have an understanding of the conditions in which you're working and the process uh, that other people are going through in order to get to the point where they see that need for liberation themselves. But also just like, again, super basic socialist, communist ideas, which is, you know, if you work hard, you need to see some of that back. You know, it shouldn't be just you're working to help someone else get rich, you know, um, for you to have the free time and the energy to sit down and read a book, to sit down and theorize, to sit down and think. You have to have some semblance of humanity that's recognized by the powers that be. And I think that they're, um, you know, that we see people making these attempts and, and moving towards some sorts of policies and governance that looks closer to that. But I think we also just books like this remind us that we have to constantly be on top of those people. We have to constantly push for more 
Um, and we have to always be aware of what's happening to people who are in even more dire states than, than we see you know, in our own communities, what's going on in communities that are suffering even more, to fully understand that and to fully make demands um, that are based on our understanding of what's happening and what people tell us and articulate as what is happening to them instead of just going in and saying, we're going to save you. <laughs> I'm going to speak on your behalf and not listen. So um, yeah, I just, I, I love this book and I highly recommend anyone who's been listening to this uh, to, as Richard said, definitely share this conversation, share some of the quotes that I post, share the free book, which is available on Patreon for free for everyone, no paywall, nothing. Um, and also just to communicate as best as you can. Um, some of the things that if you had a chance to read the book in part or in full, what you learned from it um, and how you can work with others in communicating that. So yeah, that's my takeaway. Yeah, and definitely feel free if any of you feel like you're you're able to apply this to any stuff that you're doing currently, definitely share that with us. I, I'd love to hear anything like that too. Oh yeah, that would be nice. Like if we had a a set of, like a tweet thread of this is how I applied Fidelity in my own organization or organizing or groups that I'm involved in. That would be really love, cool. I'd love to be able to amplify that. So send that our way, please. Well, I think that's all for our third and final. I'm almost, I'm almost sad. Our third and final uh, episode on pedagogy of the oppressed. I, I would love to actually revisit this at some point if we can, maybe in the future um, to have a, a more sussed out conclusion. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something I encourage everyone to check out. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for now, but we're going to, we're, we're going to come back to this. I have a feeling. Yeah. I'll definitely be revisiting this text personally, even if we're not able to broadcast it or anything about <laughs> it. it. It's, it's been invaluable already. And 2020 is whew, wearing on my nerves. So <laughs> I need something <laughs> to help, help keep me, keep me in line. Yeah. God, it's like already, already at that point. And it's, we've got another year and a half to go. Yeah, it's still <laughs> it's, it's, I'm sorry. We have another year and a half. To go just for like the primaries, practically. I mean, that's how much we have left. So, so hang in there, everyone. And thank you for being <laughs> with us. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Be sure to check out more on the podcast by looking up Left POC, and that's L E F T POC, on Spreaker, iTunes, Patreon or SoundCloud uh, to find the podcast itself. You can also find more about the project by going to the Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. There you can also donate a dollar or more to help us keep the show running and the project alive. We actually did a breakdown of where all the money goes uh, that we posted on Twitter. So I'll be sure to link that on the Patreon page, which again, all content is free. You'll be able to see and you can donate if you feel like uh, this project is worth your time and you're enjoying what you hear. In the meantime, be sure to share, like, comment um, on the project and the podcast and tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a colleague about what we're doing here because we think it's really important to help spread the word far beyond social media and far beyond the realm of the internet. We want to make sure that people are listening, reading, and following along with this project through multiple means. So thank you so much again and have a good one. Bye. Thank you.